about different I'd like to share with you a little story about, about myself and my background and experience. You'll see a slide here in a minute uh, that uh, comes from Rehoboth Beach, Delaware. And Rehoboth Beach, Delaware is a beautiful beach area. Um, but the reason I'm, I'm sharing it with you this morning is because for about four years, I worked in a youth ministry in the Washington, D.C. area. And every summer, we would take twice during the summertime, take busloads of kids, I'm talking between 150 to 200 high school students, uh, to Rehoboth Beach for the day. And we'd get up and meet at the church at 5.30 in the morning and have four, five, six buses, and we'd drive for three hours to Rehoboth Beach, spend the entire day at the beach, and then three hours back. And now what you have to understand is um, I have very fair skin, and going to the beach has never been my gig, Okay. And back in this day, the, the, the sunblocks were like maybe SPF 3 or 4. And, uh, and so I kind of, even though on the outside, every, every time we went, I was always up and, you know, acting like, hey, this is the greatest thing in the world. I have to be honest, on the inside, I was grumbling. You know, three-hour trip to Rehoboth, and then the sun, and then the sunburn, and we're going to have sand all over the place, and I'm going to feel gross, and then we've got to get three more hours back in the car, you know, and the buses going all the way back with all these hundreds of kids, uh, until just before one of the last times I went on this trip, I read Mark chapter 8, verse 34, and I have to admit that this made the experience of going to Rehoboth Beach, Delaware, transformative for me, because in that passage, Jesus says, do you want to be my disciple? A person who wants to be my disciple must give up all rights to themselves. Take up their cross and follow me. And that verse just began ringing in my ears about the idea of taking a trip to Rehoboth Beach. And I just said, Lord, please, when we go to the beach this next time, help me in this. And all day long I was repeating that passage. Give up all rights to yourself. Pick up your cross and follow me. And you know something? It, it totally was formative for me. It changed my entire experience of going to the beach with those kids. I had the best day I've ever had just pouring out and trying to love on these kids and having a great time because I was learning what it meant to focus on serving others. When that happened, the trip became a great experience. And you'll see that that's going to be a theme that runs throughout this passage this morning. The passage we're looking at, Ephesians 5, 22 and following, is one of the most discussed and disputed passages in all the New Testament today. Most of the arguments revolve around the passage, which you'll be seeing, revolve around the idea of submit and respect for the wife and love and sacrifice for the husband. When people in our culture hear about these ideas, they immediately blow them off by saying, that's just archaic and absolutely stupid. Clearly, it's a social construct of the Apostle Paul's day. When Christians read this passage, they get all tied up in knots trying to figure out how to make the text say what it's not saying. At the same time, sadly, these verses are often used for terrible abuse and treatment of one another. And so as we get into this passage this morning, what we want to focus on is what does it mean to give up our rights and to serve others and to see that when that happens, literally everything changes. So let's read the passage together and then we'll move on into it. Ephesians 5, 
we're actually beginning at verse 18, where it says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husband as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so should wives submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let every one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Okay, as we as we move into this passage, let me just simply say this. I have a graduate degree in marriage and family studies. And I have in my office at home a bookshelf, actually three shelves full of books on singleness and dating and relationships and marriage and separation and divorce and remarriage. And I would say of all those books that I have and all the ones that I've read, the most important book is this book called The Meaning of Marriage by Timothy and Kathy Keller. And uh, we, if you were to want to buy this book in a bookstore, it would cost $17.00. If you would buy it on Amazon, it costs 10 bucks. We are selling a limited number of them this morning and this evening at the Fireside Chat for $5 outside. No book, I don't get any receipts for this. I'm just pushing it for you because saying what Tim and, and, and Kathy have done in it are great. And I'll be totally candid with you and say I have absconded many ideas from them this morning and the things I'm going to share with you because of the way he, they do such an excellent job of sharing with it. So consider that book. But uh, as we get into this passage, there's four points really I want us to, to think about and consider as we're looking at it. The first point is this. It's two basic facts about marriage that Paul begins with. And what he says is these two things. The first thing he says is, is that marriage is a mystery. But he doesn't just say marriage is a mystery. He says marriage is a profound mystery. The Greek actually is mega mysterion. What Paul is saying there is that marriage is something extraordinary. It's great, it's wonderful, and it is profound. But it's still a mystery. And it's a mystery that you can only understand with God's help. That's the first thing. It's a profound mystery. The second basic fact about marriage is this, that marriage is God's idea. We find in Ephesians 5.31 that he quotes, Paul quotes Genesis chapter 2 
And he says, a man sh- therefore shall leave his father and mother and shall cling to his wife or be bound to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's a direct quote from Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, remember, was before humanity rebelled against God. It was still in the, the beauty of the Garden of Eden. And God created marriage as good and perfect and wonderful for humanity. The Bible begins with the wedding of Adam and Eve. It ends with, in the book of Revelation with a wedding, the wedding of Christ and his church. Marriage is God's idea. Yes, there are nuances in every culture which reflect the character of that particular people. But at its root, marriage is God's idea. Now, why is it important for us at the very beginning to remember that marriage is a profound mystery and it's God's idea? It's simply this. With the brokenness that we have in our culture, dealing with marriage and relationships and the issues of love, it's easy for us to be bound in fear. We need to remember, first and foremost, that marriage is God's idea, created in the Garden of Eden for our good and for our health. It's a good thing, but it's a profound mystery. The second point that I want us to consider this morning is this. As Paul describes marriage in this passage, what he is saying is that marriage is designed to be a reenactment of the gospel. Marriage is designed to be a reenactment of the gospel. What do I mean by reenactment? Well, there's a picture here of a group of reenactors. These happen to be Civil War reenactors. And as you can see, even though they live in the 21st century, they do everything during their time of reenacting to faithfully reflect the life and the experience that a person had in the Civil War. That's what it means to be a reenactor. Well, what do we mean by reenacting the gospel? What we mean there is that marriage is designed to reflect and experience the saving love of God for us in Jesus Christ. That's the primary root purpose of marriage, to reflect and experience the saving love of God for us in Christ. So this is the key idea I want you to remember this morning. If you don't remember anything else, if you fall asleep back in the back row, that's cool, but just remember this one thing as the most important thing. The gospel helps us to understand marriage, and marriage helps us to understand the gospel. Let me repeat that. The gospel helps us to understand marriage, and marriage helps us to understand the gospel. Now, if marriage is a reenactment of the gospel, then it's critically important, if we're going to understand marriage, for us to understand what the gospel is. And I know that BP preached on Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, back in November, but none of us remember what he said then. So what we want to do is remind ourselves what the gospel is. It's embedded in this passage. Ephesians 2, 1 through 5, and then chapter 4, verse 1. Here's the gospel. As, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Remember, this is, we're looking at this to understand what marriage is. What is the gospel? You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, 
carrying out the desires of the body and the flesh, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. Therefore, he says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Now that passage summarizes the gospel. What does it say there? It says that before Jesus, before Jesus, we were dead. It says we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were dead. Secondly, it says we walked following the course of this world. What Paul's saying there is this world defined our perspectives, our mindset, our life view. The course of this world is the pattern through which we walk. Before Jesus, thirdly, we walked following the prince of the power of the air. That's Satan. What Paul is saying is Satan sets the course of this world. And before Jesus, we walked according to the course of this world, which is following the prince of the power of the air. Fourthly, he says, we were bluntly sons of disobedience. That is the condition of humanity. Sons of disobedience, which means we are living out the passions of our flesh. We're carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath. Now that's a different message than you get with our culture. By and large in our culture, there's still a belief that human beings are basically good. And the Bible teaches that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, that we walked according to the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, living in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath. Now, what does this mean for marriage? That means that most people walking into marriage ultimately are living in the passions of their own flesh. They're carrying out the desires of their own body and mind. They're children of wrath. And what does that do to marriage? It doesn't mean that you can't have a good marriage, but it means by and large marriage is broken and the people in the marriage are broken. And it creates all kinds of turmoil and all kinds of problems and struggles. However, Paul says the gospel is good news. He says, but God, but God, what did God do? Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Now, what does that mean for marriage? It means that we're not stuck in our old ways. It means that we're not stuck in being sons and daughters of disobedience. It, doesn't, it means we don't have to be stuck living according to the course of this world and according to the course of our own passions. It means that marriage can reflect God's love in us through Christ. So as a result, in Ephesians 4, 15 and following, Paul says this, Be careful, Christians, now that you have the Spirit of God living within you, be careful how you walk. He says, be filled with the Spirit. 
And he also says, be submitted to one another out of the reverence you have for Jesus Christ. Those three things summarize a whole chapter and a half of exhortations that Paul gives to the Ephesians that should be a result of what it means to love Jesus. When Jesus comes into our lives, he gives us his Holy Spirit. He begins to change our heart and our attitude. And Paul says, now as that happens, it takes work. Be careful how you walk. Be sure to be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's the octane that you need to live for for the Lord. And then submit yourselves one to another out of reverence for Christ. That's what it means to live out the gospel. What does that mean for marriage? It means at least that in marriage we're called to be careful how we're living together. Being careful how we walk. It means that for marriage to work, we need to, as, as, as both partners, need to be filled with the Holy Spirit every day, confessing our sins to one another and walking in the light as He is in the light. And it, need, it also means that we are called to be submitted to one another. As brother and sister in Christ in the context of marriage, we, we don't just stand for our own rights. Jesus said, the person who wants to be my disciple must deny himself pick up his cross, and follow me. In that light, we are called to be submitted one to another. Now, all this stuff is critically important, you see, because Paul says that the gospel transforms and changes our life. And the gospel helps us to understand what's supposed to happen in marriage. We are reenacting the gospel in the context of marriage. And so marriage also on a daily basis, helps us understand the gospel. That's the second point. Marriage is designed to reenact the gospel. The third thing we see in this passage, and this is when it starts to land the airplane for us in a very practical way, is that marriage can be painful work. Now remember we just said, Paul said, It ain't easy being a Christian. Be careful how you walk. Be filled with the Spirit. He said, be submitted to one another. Now he says in the context of marriage, this can be hard work. It can be painful work. As a matter of fact, it's much harder than most couples expect it to be. I can hear it now. I say, but Bob, we're talking about love. And when you love one another, it ought to be natural. It ought to be authentic. It ought to work. It ought to just flow. No. No. What does the gospel say? The gospel says we were dead in our transgressions. Now he's made us alive, but now we've got to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Folks, that's what marriage is. It's working out salvation with fear and trembling with this other person. Paul says, no longer live like the Gentiles do, but put off your old self and put on the new self. That's what's involved in marriage. Put it like this. Marriage is like packing for a great vacation in Hawaii, only to discover after you've gotten on the plane and the plane's landed that you've landed in the Swiss Alps. Okay, 
Now, the Swiss Alps is a great place to take a vacation. But if you pack for Hawaii, it's going to take some adjustments. Okay? And that's what marriage is like. It's very different than the expectations that we originally had. So two questions come up when we hear the fact that marriage can be hard, that marriage takes work. The first question is, goes something like this. I assume that when I find my true soulmate, we'll be truly compatible and we shouldn't have to face such painful work. You know, having a true soulmate means we're going to really work well and be compatible together. Here's the real truth. Any two people who enter into marriage are broken sinners. Christians are still broken sinners saved by grace. And God is working His salvation out in us. Therefore, no two people are compatible. No two people are compatible. As a matter of fact, there's a Christian author and theologian named Stanley Hauerwas, and he has a fantastic quote which describes this. He says, we always marry the wrong person. We never know whom we marry. We just think we do. Even if we think we are marrying the right person, just give it a little while and he or she will change. For marriage means we will not be the same person after we have entered into it. The primary problem is learning how to love and care for the stranger to whom you find yourself married. Now, folks, I can't tell you how many times in my life I've heard a person say to me, you know, I'm not married to the person I thought I was married to. Guess what? We're all in that path. I'm not saying that there isn't the right one out there for you, and I'm not saying it's not going to work. I absolutely believe God prepared my wife for me and for my needs and myself for her. But you know something? We didn't know each other when we got married. Hauerwas is right. There are no two people who are naturally compatible. So the second question then comes up. If love is hard, then why love at all? C.S. Lewis, as usual, had a great response to this. He said, love anything, and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in that casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The alternative to tragedy, or at least to the risk of tragedy, is damnation. He could have said the alternative to loving or at least the risk of loving is damnation. Marriage can be painful work, but the gospel helps us understand that we're called as creatures made in God's image to love. Loving one another is the heart of the gospel. 
God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Love one another for love is of God. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Yes, love is costly. Marriage is costly. It's hard work. But it's the gospel. Because the gospel helps us to understand marriage. And marriage helps us to understand the gospel. Finally, though, the fourth point is this. Marriage is wonderful. Marriage is glorious. The gospel is the best news in the world. It means good news. Therefore, since marriage reflects the gospel, marriage is good news. Marriage is glorious. It's a reenactment of the gospel. It works to the degree that it approximates the pattern of God's self-giving love in Christ. Let me repeat that. Marriage works to the degree that it approximates the pattern of God's self-giving love in Christ. So what's the pattern of God's self-giving love in Christ? We see two things. First, we see that Jesus submitted to the Father. Not my will, but thy will be done, Father. Second thing we see is that Jesus sacrificed himself for the church. This is the pattern of God's self-giving love in Christ. Therefore, in marriage, the couple reenact God's self-giving love in Christ. And how does that happen? First, they mutually submit to one another, as Paul said in, in Ephesians 5.21. It begins with mutually submitting to one another, giving up their rights to one another. Then, and only then, after the mutual submission, the husband and the wife together reenact as a couple the self-giving love in Christ. How do they do it? By the husband, Paul says, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. The first thing that Jesus did, he says, was loving the church. Husbands, you are to love your wives as Christ loved the church. Husbands, that's the cross. That's the cross. That's the Father forgive them for they know not what they're doing. That's blood. But Paul says also, husbands, love your wives as your own body, nourishing and cherishing her. The husband reflects the self-giving love of Christ the way Jesus loved the church, giving up his rights, sacrificing himself, serving the church. In response, the wife, it says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Recognize that Paul says this after he says, submit yourselves one to another. First, there's a mutual submission before the wife is asked to reflect the church and to reflect Jesus' submission to the Father. And then he says, wives, respect your husband. Why do husbands and wives reenact the gospel together? 
Because the gospel helps us understand marriage. And marriage helps us to understand the gospel. A number of years ago, I had the privilege of meeting a gentleman by the name of Dr. Robertson McQuilkin when he was president of Columbia International University in Columbia, South Carolina. A number of years after I met Dr. McQuilkin, his wife was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. And at the height of Dr. McQuilkin's presidency of Columbia International University, he resigned his presidency to be with his wife. I want you to hear his words. I haven't in my life experienced easy decision-making on major decisions, but uh, one of the simplest and clearest decisions I've had to make is this one, because circumstances dictated it. Uh, Muriel, now, uh, in the last couple of months, seems to be almost happy when with me, and almost never happy when not with me. In fact, she seems to feel trapped, becomes very fearful, sometimes almost terror. And when she can't get to me, there can be anger. She's in distress. But when I'm with her, she's happy and contented. And so I must be with her at all times. And you see, it's not only that I promised in sickness and in health, Till death do us part. And I'm a man of my word. But as I have said, I don't know with this group, but I've said publicly, it's the only fair thing she sacrificed for me for 40 years to make my life possible. So, if I cared for her for 40 years, I'd still be in debt. However, there's much more. It's not that I have to, it's that I get to. I love her very dearly, and you can tell it's not easy to talk about. She's a delight. It's a great honor to care for such a wonderful person. I haven't in my life. Helps us to understand marriage. And marriage helps us to understand the gospel. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, teach us your gospel. Lord, empower us by your Holy Spirit to live your gospel out with one another. Especially, Father, for those of us who are married, help us to reenact your gospel with our spouses so that we might better understand marriage and that marriage will help us understand your gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Lord